Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. This is Rebecca Yank, and I am a pediatrician here at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. I am joined by my colleague, Dr. Rami Arook, who is a pediatric gastroenterologist. Today, we will be discussing the evaluation, diagnosis, and management of constipation during childhood. Welcome, Rami. Good to be here, Rebecca. Functional constipation is when a child has either a decreased frequency or painful passage of bowel movements. It can be related to other organic diseases, but most children presenting with constipation will have no underlying medical disease, which is the focus of today's podcast. That's right, Rebecca. It doesn't take much to diagnose a child with constipation. A thorough history and a physical examination is really all you need. Let's review the basic components. The age of the child when symptoms began is one of the most important pieces of information to start with. You should ask about pooping habits as early as the newborn period. If the child is older, ask if there were difficulties during toilet training years. Ask about the frequency and caliber of the stool. A dietary history will also provide insight on whether this child is eating certain foods that may make them more prone to getting constipated, such as fast food, poor water intake, and dairy products. Review the general development of the child and any psychological comorbidities. Review the family history for gastrointestinal diseases, including Hirschsprung's disease, celiac disease, or other disorders, such as thyroid, parathyroid, kidney problems, and cystic fibrosis, which are all associated with constipation. In addition, social disturbances of the child or family life and temperament of the child can also provide some clues. All of this information can provide understanding of how chronic the issue is. Usually, over-the-counter meds have already been attempted to treat the constipation. That's right. You should review the type, dose, frequency, and compliance. Often, I find that the amount has been underdosed or only tried once before being considered a failure. So what criteria is required to diagnose a child with functional constipation? That really depends on the age of the child. For infants up to four years of age, the diagnostic criteria for constipation is one month of at least two of the following, two or fewer defecations per week, history of excessive stool retention, history of painful or hard bowel movements, history of large diameter stool, presence of a large fecal mass in the rectum. What about the older child? In the age category of toilet-trained kids, the following additional criteria may be used. One at least one episode a week of incontinence after the acquisition of toilet training. Two, history of large diameter stools that may obstruct the toilet. These are established guidelines by the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, also known as NASPIGAN. Okay, let's talk about the key components of the physical exam. For the abdominal exam, pay special attention to the muscle tone signs of distension, and palpable fecal mass. Inspect the perianal region. Note the anal position and the presence of stool around the anus. Check for erythema, skin tags, or anal fissures. Check the lumbosacral region of a dimple or tuft of hair. Is a digital rectal exam necessary? Good question. Based on NASPIGAN guidelines, there really is no evidence to support the use of digital rectal exam to diagnose functional constipation. A digital rectal exam can also be distressing for the older child. However, if you have an infant less than one month old and difficulties defecating, a digital rectal exam should be performed to evaluate for anal stenosis or erectile mass. 
The evacuation of explosive stools after withdrawal of the examining finger is suggestive of Hirschsprung's disease. So in summary, a thorough clinical history and physical exam is important in the evaluation of constipation. Okay, let's talk about specific considerations based on the age of a patient. Constipation can be challenging because stooling patterns are variable during different ages in childhood. I think of it as three main periods of time. First, with the introduction of cereals and solid foods during infancy, then toilet training during toddler years, and then with the start of school. Let's review some clinical cases to help illustrate. A four-month-old female presents to clinic for constipation. The parents describe her screaming and straining whenever she has a bowel movement. Stools are described as soft and watery once passed. Mom feels that the only way she can get her to poop is by using a rectal suppository. Other notable history is that she was born at 37 weeks and passed meconium within the first 24 hours of life. She initially was breastfed but transitioned to standard formula around two months old. Digital rectal exam demonstrates soft stool in the rectal vault and no other abnormalities. This is a case of infant dyskesia, defined as infants less than six months of age, with at least 10 minutes of straining and crying before successful passage of stool. There is usually an absence of other health problems. The poop is soft or liquid in consistency. It is important to point out that defecation requires both an increase in intraabdominal pressure with the simultaneous relaxation of the pelvic floor. Infant dyskesia is simply the result of failure to coordinate these two independent events. Coordination with successful defecation may occur by chance, but you should reassure the parents that eventually defecation is learned and infant dyskesia will resolve on its own. So I often have parents come to clinic very stressed about their infant, describing them as turning shades of red and purple when pooping, and just convinced that something must be wrong. Always acknowledge their concerns. A review of the infant's growth, which should be normal, is also essential. If onset is less than one month old, this raises the suspicion of Hirschsprung's disease. Ask about the timing of passage of the first meconium. Although 99% of healthy term neonates pass their first meconium before 48 hours of life, 50% of children with Hirschsprung's disease also pass meconium within 48 hours of birth. If you have a clinical suspicion for Hirschsprung's disease, Rectal suction biopsy is considered the gold standard for diagnosis, and there should be a referral to pediatric gastroenterology. Performing a methodical physical exam, including a rectal exam, helps to rule out any anorectal abnormalities. You can reassure concerned parents by pointing out the absence of these concerning signs. So, what's your opinion about laxatives for infant dyskesia? Laxatives are not necessary for infant dyskesia. Encourage parents to avoid rectal stimulation, such as suppositories and rectal probes, as this may actually produce artificial sensory experiences that may be distressing for the child. It may also lead to the learned behavior that some type of stimulation to defecate is needed. So how often should an infant have a bowel movement? That depends on the nutritional intake. Formula-fed babies usually have a bowel movement at least once a day but they can go one to two days without having a bowel movement. For breastfed infants, bowel movement frequency is variable. What matters is that stools come out soft. Let's move on to another clinical case. A two-and-a-half-year-old boy presents to the clinic due to difficulty with potty training. He squats and hides in the corner frequently and refuses to sit on the toilet. 
Whenever he does have a bowel movement, the child cries and strains and only a small, hard pellet comes out. As an infant, he had soft bowel movements daily, but after he turned one, his bowel movements became more infrequent. Functional constipation in children can begin as early as the first year of life and continues into later years if not addressed and treated. So often, I get parents that come in right before a child is three years old with constipation, desperate to get them potty trained so that they can attend daycare or school. I can't stress enough the importance of identifying the problem of constipation early. In a review study, the average age of onset for functional constipation is between two and three years of age, and most children have onset before school age. Early recognition prevents the risk of severe constipation and fecal soiling. Children less than two years of age respond better to treatment than children greater than two years of age. So I feel that the toddler years are one of the most challenging periods of time to treat constipation since there often is a strong component of withholding behavior secondary to just the fear of pooping. I agree. Functional constipation is often triggered by a painful or unpleasant defecation event. This often leads to a cycle where the child avoids or refuses to poop, which then leads to the accumulation of larger, harder stool that is more painful, and the child ends up developing what we call withholding behavior. Yes, I often have families describe the child standing or sitting with their legs crossed or even hiding a corner and becoming red in the face from straining. The straining is actually not to have a bowel movement, but rather the child is trying to withhold the stool due to fear of pain associated with defecation. Long-term, untreated constipation can lead to a dilated and sometimes flaccid colon due to the retention of stool. So in summary, these children associate using the toilet as an uncomfortable experience. This leads us to our next case of what happens if constipation is not addressed early. A seven-year-old boy presents to clinic with his father due to complaints of daily abdominal pain, poor appetite, and constipation. He has struggled with constipation on and off since he was a toddler and has tried multiple short-lived trials of over-the-counter laxatives. Since the beginning of the school year, he has started having soiling episodes. He has no other medical problems and is doing well at school, but dad is worried that he is now being bullied. He also refuses to use the restroom at school. Dad has tried to discipline him in the past, but this has also not helped. The child appears anxious, but admits that he does not know that he has had an accident until someone else points it out. The chronic nature of constipation and misconceptions about its symptoms and pathophysiology can lead to frustrating experiences for patients and their families. When constipation is not addressed aggressively or left untreated, the fecal retention increases. The risk of fecal soiling accidents, also known as encopresis. In a recent review study, 57% of children with functional constipation present to a pediatric gastroenterologist at an age less than 4 years old. That study showed that children who develop functional constipation at school age or later had a higher likelihood of behavioral or developmental comorbidities. I think what triggers the doctor's appointment to discuss constipation is when it begins to cause a great deal of distress and conflict between the family and the child. There may even be potential poor academic performance, missed school time, and bullying at school. I find that it is important to address these emotional issues as part of the treatment plan. 
Yes, it can be distressing for the families. Remind parents to never discipline a child for soiling accidents. Often the child does not even know the accident has occurred until after the fact. The problem also takes a toll on the parents. Studies have shown that parents of children with chronic constipation rate their quality of life quite low compared with healthy controls, even lower than those with children with inflammatory bowel disease. As a provider, it is also helpful to offer a written letter to the school regarding the treatment plan to help ease the pressure on the parents. Let's move on and talk about our teenagers with constipation. Often, I will get giggles, embarrassed looks, and denials of a problem when I ask teens about their bowel habits. I think the trick with this age group is that you must ask specific and detailed questions. This is a great time to use the Bristol Stool Scale. The Bristol Stool Scale is a pictorial and descriptive tool that can easily be found online. It actually classifies the form of human feces into seven categories. For example, Type 1 describes separate, hard, small lumps of stool, while Type 7 is watery, soupy-like stool. I usually have a copy posted on the wall of my exam room for reference. Using this chart is a quick way to get over the embarrassment and lighten up the mood. More often with this age group, constipation has always been a problem, and the child has already seen multiple providers with failed attempts of treatment. Yes, I agree. So it is important to scream for other serious organic diseases by asking about symptoms such as abdominal pain that wakes the child up from sleep, poor growth, weight loss, rectal bleeding, and recurrent fevers. Children with inflammatory bowel conditions and celiac disease may present with constipation. Remember that like fever, constipation may be a symptom and not a diagnosis. So even after a thorough explanation of constipation, I still have parents that continue to demand imaging and tests to make sure that the child's symptoms are not due to some other cause. So what is the diagnostic value of performing an abdominal x-ray? There is no evidence that supports using an abdominal x-ray to diagnose functional constipation. In addition to the clinical history, you can determine if a child has fecal impaction if there is a palpable hard mass in the lower abdomen identified on physical examination. What about laboratory tests? I will order labs to rule out some organic causes associated with constipation, such as celiac disease and hypothyroidism. However, there should also be a clinical history to support the decision to order labs. So let's move on to the pharmacologic treatment for functional constipation. If you walk down the aisle of a pharmacy, you could easily get overwhelmed by the number of options for laxatives. Polyethylene glycol, better known as Miralax, is my first choice medication for short and long-term treatment of constipation in children. Overall, it has a good safety profile. Based on previous studies, polyethylene glycol is more effective than lactulose, milk of magnesia, mineral oil, or placebo. What about enemas? Evidence does not support the addition of enemas with polyethylene glycol to treat chronic constipation in children. Often the anticipation and administration of enemas triggers high level of stress and anxiety for both the parent and child, so it should not be utilized for routine use. So every pediatric gastroenterologist has their own go-to home regimen for fecal disimpaction. How would you start? 
Once a fecal impaction has been verified by physical exam and history, NASPAGAN guidelines recommends starting with polyethylene glycol 1.5 grams per kilogram per day for three or six days as the first-line treatment. What do you suggest for prevention of fecal impaction and maintenance therapy for constipation? After fecal disimpaction, polyethylene glycol is recommended as the first-line maintenance treatment. A starting dose of 0.4 grams per kilogram per day is recommended. The dose should be adjusted up and down according to the clinical response. I recommend increasing the dose until the child attains a consistency of stools similar to soft-serve frozen yogurt between Bristol stool type 4 or type 5. So a major take-home point is to emphasize that maintenance treatment should continue for at least 6 to 12 months of oral laxatives, in addition to dietary and behavioral modifications under the guidance of a provider. That's right. Studies from the Netherlands followed children with chronic constipation for years. The study showed that only about 60% of patients have normal bowel movements after discontinuing all the medications after one year of treatment by a gastroenterologist, and many have ongoing symptoms with or without medications for several years. Up to 25% still had chronic constipation 10 years after initial referral to the gastroenterologist. Remember to counsel your patients that all symptoms of constipation should be resolved for at least one month before discontinuation of treatment. So that means treatment should always be decreased gradually. If the child is working on toilet training, medication should continue a bit longer after toilet training is achieved. What about the parent that is worried about laxatives and wants a, quote, natural solution for their child's constipation? There is no evidence to support that the use of fiber supplements and increasing fluids will treat functional constipation by itself. However, a balanced diet that is rich in sources of fiber and adequate water intake should be encouraged as part of standard treatment. The same goes for probiotics. There is no evidence to date that probiotics are a treatment for constipation. So besides consistent use of medication, any other tips on the daily routine to treat constipation? It is helpful to start a bowel training or retraining routine where the child sits on the toilet for 5 to 10 minutes after every meal or before their evening bath. Positioning during the bowel movement is also important. Feet should be planted flat and not dangling. The use of a step stool under the child's feet can help with appropriate posture, position, and support for easier defecation. Again, all interventions should be consistent for successful outcome. This was a great discussion today. So in summary, functional constipation is when a child has either a decreased frequency or painful passage of bowel movements. A thorough history and physical exam can help rule out more serious organic causes. Early adequate intervention is beneficial as soon as constipation is identified. Remember to emphasize to your patients and their families that consistent, uninterrupted maintenance regimens will help attain more long-term success. You've summed it up. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during the episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignettes presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. 
We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.